And thank you, everybody, for coming on out to what is the final Saturday evening service of uh, 2020, and maybe forever. Who knows? But I want to thank you all for being a part of it and those of you joining online. And uh, I know we said this during announcements, but I want to be as, just as crystal clear as possible. Pardon me for the overkill. But starting next weekend, we will still be out on this field. We're just going to be here Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Uh, next weekend and then moving forward. Do not want to lose anybody. And so I just want to make sure uh, that, that that word gets out. So my name is Ryan, and uh, we are in the middle of a series out of the book of Acts, which is about the earliest original Christianity. And today, the day that we are launching the fall semester of small groups, we're going to take, uh, take a look at one of the most important local churches in early Christianity. I'm in Acts chapter 11. Uh, start reading in, in uh, verse 19. It tells us all about it. It says, Those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the message to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, Cypriot and Cyrenian men, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Hellenists, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Then the report about them was heard by the church that was at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with a firm resolve of the heart, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and large numbers of people were added to the Lord. Then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. In those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the time of Claudius. So each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers who lived in Judea. They did this sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. And then chapter 13, 1 to 3 says, In the church that was at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius the Cyrenian, Manaen, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I've called them to. Then after they'd fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. This is God's word. I just want to take a moment up here. I really liked preaching at this time of day, and I am going to miss this. Just one moment, please, for the pastor. Um, so, so this passage is really all about uh, the church in Antioch, how it was formed uh, what it looked like, how it operated. And the church of Antioch was not only one of the most important churches in early Christianity, it was also the very first church of its kind. And the truth is, if I wanted to survey and, and, and talk about everything that we can see in the verses I just read you, we would have more than enough material this evening. Uh, for, for example, uh, we'd see the importance of outreach to new groups of people. All right, if, if you've been following along in the Acts series, uh, one thing to notice is that prior to this moment when Christians took the gospel, they took it to people, really exclusively to people who already believed the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. So Christians have taken the gospel to Jews, took the gospel to Samaritans, to the Ethiopian in Acts 8, to Saul the Pharisee in Acts 9, 
and uh, to uh, Cornelius, the centurion in Acts 10. We talked about that last week. But one of the things that all of those people had in common was that they already believed the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. But what you're reading here uh, is that in verse 20, for the very first time, Christians started taking the gospel to Hellenists. That, that's a Greek word that just means polytheists. It's people who were ancient pagans who did not believe the Hebrew scriptures at all. And in hearing the gospel, uh, a lot of them got saved. And out of that is really how the church at Antioch was born. And uh, the, the first verse of chapter 13 gives us a look at the DNA of what, what the, the, uh, the leadership of the church at Antioch was like. Uh, it, it tells us that, that uh, part of their leadership team, you have uh, Barnabas, who was a Cypriot Jew, in other words, a bicultural Jew. Uh, you had a man named Simeon who was called Niger. The word Niger means black, meaning he was a black African. Uh, the next thing you have Lucius the Cyrenian. Cyrene was in North Africa, but North Africans were not black. They were more like what we would refer to as Arabic. Um, and then you have uh, Menaean, who was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, meaning he was kind of like, a, um, like an upper class sort of cultural elite. And then the last one that makes the list is, is someone that we know by now, Saul the Pharisee who was basically an, an academic. He was, uh, you know, you could think of him like a professor. And so that was the leadership of the church at Antioch. So what you had at this church uh, was, was, was the first multinational, multi-ethnic, multi-class church in Christian history from the leadership down. Nothing like this had ever existed before. And if you keep reading in, in chapter 13, uh, you'll see that they were a praying church and that while they were praying, uh, the Holy Spirit gave them the idea to do something that, that no church had ever done before, which was to strategically send some of its own leaders out uh, as missionaries, which they did through even more prayer and even more fasting. Um, verses 25 and 26 tell us that this was a church that built up believers, meaning they weren't just an evangelistic church. They were also a church that knew how to balance evangelism and discipleship, which is really rare in churches. Usually churches tend to emphasize one and de-emphasize the other. Antioch knew how to do both. And then the last thing we see in this passage is that they were a church that cared very deeply uh, about reaching out to the poor and meeting practical needs for the people that God placed in their life that didn't have as much as they had. So I, I just want to take a, a moment here and point out, this would have been an amazing church to be a part of. Uh, this, this was a church that was marked by things like creativity and innovation, thinking outside the box, risk-taking, trying new things. Uh, the, the way that I kind of understand what Antioch must have felt like culturally, um, this, was, this was basically the early church um, example of, of you know, Apple computers or Google or something like that. And the truth is you, you could design an entire teaching about any of the things that I just mentioned, about how to reach people who don't have a biblical worldview or the importance of cultural diversity inside the church, or the importance of prayer, or, or a, a strategic missiology, you know, a, a, a willingness to send people from your church, or, or, you know, balancing evangelism and discipleship or caring for the poor. You can talk about any, any number of those things and spend any number of weeks on any one of those topics. But tonight, I want to focus on something from this passage that is so easy to overlook, it probably didn't even catch your attention when I read it. And yet, it was the key to everything that was going on that was so right about Antioch. And it's what a man named Barnabas was doing right in the middle of all of it. What we read in this passage is that in response to the Antioch church uh, coming to be, the leaders in the Jerusalem church decided to send Barnabas down there. And what Barnabas did for, uh, is recorded for us, what he did for them is recorded for us in verses 23 and 24, which say, when Barnabas arrived... And saw the grace of God, he was glad 
and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with a firm resolve of the heart. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and large numbers of people were added to the Lord. And I want to spend all the time that we have uh, this evening uh, just looking at what Barnabas did there. And because of the cultural moment that we're in right now and the situation the coronavirus has placed us in right now, uh, it, is more, it is my firm conviction that it is more important than ever that we understand exactly what he did. So I, I, I want to walk through four things tonight. I want to look at what this ministry of Barnabas was that was so central to the health and the life and the vitality of the Antioch church. I want to look at, um, first off, what it is. Secondly, why it's so important. Thirdly, what it looks like practically lived out in our lives. And then fourthly, how we can live it out ourselves. So, so the first thing to hit here, obviously, is, is let's define what it is, this ministry of Barnabas. Uh, verse 23 says that when Barnabas went down to Antioch and saw what was happening, Scripture says he encouraged them. Now, I just want to pause here. Something came into your mind. I actually did a little unofficial survey this week. I picked up the phone and called a, a bunch of different people and said, what comes to your mind when you think of in, encouragement? What, is it, what does it mean to be encouraged or, or encourage somebody? And I just want to offer this. Something comes to your mind when you think about the concept of encouragement or, or what it looks like to be encouraged or give, give encouragement to somebody else. And I just want to put this out here. I can almost guarantee you that whatever comes to your mind when you hear that word falls short of all that the Bible is talking about when it's talking about this. See, if you read verse 23 in different translations you'll find different English words describing exactly what Barnabas did here for Antioch. And whenever you see English translations having trouble translating a Greek word, it's because that Greek word has such a depth of meaning, there's, there's so much nuance to it that it really can't be captured by any single English word. So the Greek word that describes what Barnabas did when Scripture says he encouraged them is the Greek word parakaleo. And there's two parts to that word. First off, kaleo means to call. It means to point people toward a goal or a truth. It's a very forceful word. But the second part of this word is, is para, which literally means to come alongside, like a paralegal or a paramedic. And that's a word that means to be near you and to be very sympathetic towards you. It's a very gentle word. And so if you sense a kind of tension between the two parts of this word parakaleo, you're exactly right, and that's exactly why this Greek word is so hard to translate with any single English word. Because kaleo, to call, is a very forceful word. And it's about telling people uh, what they need to hear, regardless of how unpleasant it is to hear it, or what they need to do, or where they need to go, or what they need to understand. But on the other hand, para means to be sympathetic with that person, to be near that person, to the point of identifying with that person and ensuring that what, wherever they do need to go, they're not going to have to go there alone. It's by contrast a very gentle word. So what you have here is, a, is, a, is both a, a very strong and a very tender word all at once. It's too strong to get across the idea of just kind of holding somebody's hand, but it's also far too gentle to get across the idea of just barking orders at them in a kind of unmerciful, unloving way. Um, I heard Tim Keller define this word this way. Uh, this, was, this was really helpful to me. He described it as, as a sympathetic, loving insistence on the truth. It's a perfect embodiment of both truth and love at the same time. That's what this ministry is. So, so the second thing that I wanted to walk through, having defined what it is, 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 is how important it is. 
I'm not going to read these verses again because I did this on the front end. But in verses 19, 20, and 21 of, of chapter 11, we, you have the picture of evangelism. You have people uh, who have come to the saving knowledge of Jesus, sharing their faith with other people, and in response, people hearing that and finding faith in Jesus themselves. That's something that we refer to as evangelism. But then down in verse 26, you have those people who have come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ being built up and being trained and being grounded and being developed primarily through teaching, which is something that we usually refer to in the church as discipleship. But right in the middle of these two things, you have Barnabas doing parakaleo, this kind of intense, uh, truthful, loving, personal, motivational ministry. And, and the author of Acts, Luke, meant for us to see how important this is because right after we're told that Barnabas encouraged people, Luke tells us that right after that and as a direct result of that, large numbers of people were added to the Lord. Now that's really interesting to me. Because Barnabas did not go to Antioch to reach people who were not Christians, and he didn't go to, to Antioch to train up people who already were Christians. He just went down there to encourage people, and yet when he did, everything else came to life. And so this church, what you're seeing here is this church had gotten off to a great start, but it was only when Barnabas came and did what he did that it became all it was meant to be. And what that is meant to show us, very simply, is that you and I cannot grow into the people that we're called to be. And we cannot live the lives that God has called us to live apart from this here. What we need as, as designed by God is we need people in our life who are, who are both totally truthful with us and totally loving toward us if we're to grow into the people God's called us to be. And the reason for that, the why behind that is, is found in Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews, who, he, Hebrews pardon me, chapter 3, verse 13. Hebrews 3.13 says, to encourage one another daily. It's the same exact Greek word for what Barnabas did for the Antioch church. It says to encourage one another daily so that you're not hardened by sin's deception. And what that verse is, is teaching us about ourselves is something that I think we can all admit if we're willing to get honest with ourselves, which is that you and I are usually the last people to see what's really going on in our own lives. That for, for, for whatever reason, this is true of me, I'm sure this is true of you as well, all of us suddenly have a degree in psychology when it comes to pointing out the problems in somebody else and analyzing how their childhood affects them and the relational mistakes that they're making that are leading to the, you know, the turmoil that they're experiencing and the price that they're paying. Everybody's a Dr. Phil when it comes to somebody else in their life, but scripture says we're the last people to truly see what's going on in our own lives because what Hebrews is saying is that our own sin has a deceptive nature to it to the point that you and I on autopilot will gravitate toward a state of self-denial. We'll deny the truth about ourselves. We'll justify. We'll make excuses. We, we won't call things in our lives what they are. And, and, and so what that means is that we will not change and we will not grow unless we have people in our lives doing for us what Barnabas did for the Antioch church. That's how important this is. So it makes perfect sense to me that when Barnabas showed up is when that church truly came to life. So, so that's what this ministry is. That's how important this ministry is. The next question this raises for me is what does this actually, what does this practically look like on the ground level? And, and the truth is that's not, that's not as easy an, a question to answer as I'd like it to be. And the reason for that is because as important as this ministry is, the ministry of encouragement is, one of the things that's unique about it is that it's really not so much its own ministry as much as it is something that, that's meant to permeate every ministry. For instance, 
Uh, churches don't have a department of encouragement uh, led, uh, led by a, a director of encouragement or an encouragement team. Uh, you're not going to find that in, in local churches today. Uh, the, the, the way that, that, that this makes sense to me um, is, is with a cooking analogy. So, so this actually surprised me, something I only learned about myself um, moving into my 30s. I actually really enjoy cooking. Never really cooked in my life. But me, me and uh, my wife, Katie, we started doing this thing called HelloFresh. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but the way that it works is uh, you sign up and they basically mail you these refrigerated boxes full of ingredients. It, they, they make it as easy as possible. You got all these fresh ingredients that you can unpack and, um, and the directions, the cooking instructions are right there. Very difficult to mess up. And so I've discovered through this that I actually really love to cook. And, you know, you pick up some things. You know, you start feeling like a... Little, little miniature Gordon Ramsay in the kitchen after you do a few of these things. So I, you know, I developed some knife skills. But just having to prepare you know, meals over and over again, uh, one of the things that, that, that I immediately noticed that I was lacking in my you know, culinary abilities is I was not seasoning any of my food nearly enough. And what I found with HelloFresh is about half the prep time on any meal they ask you to cook is just spent seasoning the food. And I mean like multiple times. So, so they'll have you season individual ingredients, mix them together, then season that. Sometimes they have you season water before you boil things in it. And I realized I had to repent. I was not using nearly enough seasoning in my life. And maybe that's a word from God for somebody else here on this field this evening. It certainly was for me. But the more I thought about it, the more that makes sense to me. Because what nobody does is sit down at the table and eat you know, their steak and then their vegetables and then their mashed potatoes and then throw a bunch of salt in their mouth. It just doesn't work that way. It'd be incredibly strange. What you do is you season everything to the point that it permeates everything and it's exactly the, the way that it's meant to be with this ministry of encouragement. It's, it's meant to really permeate everything a church does and, and so therefore it's really not something um, that, that, that just a minister or just staff members is doing. So in a sense, it's a little bit hard to define, but what we can see very clearly from Barnabas' example here is that this ministry of encouragement is, is something that's meant to be both highly personal and it's meant to be ongoing. And the reason I say that is because Barnabas didn't write an encouraging letter to the church in Antioch. He went down there personally and he got into their lives personally. And he met with them face to face. And scripture says he did so over a year because that's how this ministry works. It can only really happen in the context of personal, ongoing relationships. And, and the more that I considered that, the more it made perfect sense to me because this ministry is all about the embodiment of both truth and love. And you really can't know the specific truth that somebody needs to hear until you take the time to get to know them. And you can't communicate that truth in love apart from a deep relationship that took a lot of time to build with them. And, and when scripture talks about in, in, encouragers, the way, that Bible, the way the Bible defines them, encouragers are the kinds of people who, who at the same time, on the one hand, they're the first people that you want to run to when you mess up because you know they're not going to write you off and, and they're not going to condemn you and they're not going to shame you. But at the same time, they're also not going to pull punches with you. And they'll tell you exactly what you need to hear, even if it's a very painful thing for you to hear, rather than see you make the same mistake and make a mess of your life further on down the road. I've heard it said before that, that enemies will stab you in the back, but your, your true friends will stab you in the front. And that's what an encourager is willing to do in love, to perform surgery in you so that you don't drive off of a cliff later in life. And so before I, I move any forward here, I just want to ask, do you see how difficult this ministry actually is? 
whatever comes to mind when you think of encouraging other people or being encouraged by people, what Scripture's talking about here is, is about, it's, it's about so much more than just being somebody's cheerleader, you know, and, in, and, and rooting them on from the sidelines as they go and pursue their dreams throughout life. It's about so much more than just sending a midweek text message saying, hey, I'm thinking about you with a smiley face at the end of it. It's about entering into the life of somebody and embodying both truth and love in their life so that they can be the person that God's called them to be. And if, if when you hear that description of an individual like that, if nobody comes to mind for you, that's because none of us are naturally good at this. That every single one of us has a tendency to err on one side of this because of our, 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 you know, our temperament or our childhood or past experiences that we have. Every single one of us either has a tendency to be you know, really good at loving people but not nearly as direct as we need to be. Or we're great at telling the truth to people, but we're really bad at doing it in a way that demonstrates patience and kindness and gentleness to the people that we're communicating that truth to. And so what I'm saying all this to say, and this is before we move to our last kind of move in this teaching, what I'm saying all this to say is this is an incredibly difficult thing to embody in our lives. This is something that none of us are going to naturally be good at, and yet this is something that we die without. We'll never become the people God's called us to be and live the lives he's called us to live without. So the question is, what's the answer? What's the solution? And how do we live this out in our own lives? And, and interestingly, Luke gave us an answer to that in his description of Barnabas. Because you remember when, when Luke described Barnabas going to the Antioch church, it, it said, he said that, that uh, he, he encouraged them and he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit. And that's not a throwaway line. That's not just filler for Luke. What Luke is telling us is that the reason Barnabas was incredibly good at the ministry of encouragement is because very simply, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And that makes perfect sense when you consider what Jesus himself said about the Holy Spirit to his disciples the night before he died. And it's found in, in John chapters 13 through 16, uh, something that we normally refer to as the upper room discourse. And, and so before I read you what Jesus said to them, let me just try to paint this scene for us. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. He's hours away from what will be the most agonizing thing that, that anyone could ever imagine. It's actually more agonizing than anything you and I could imagine. He's invested his life into his disciples uh, for the last three years, and he knows, Jesus knows, that they are still woefully unprepared for everything that God is going to walk them through in the hours and the days and the weeks and the months ahead and the years ahead. And so what Jesus does in order to encourage his disciples and prepare them for everything that God has ahead of them, is, is he, he promises them something called the Holy Spirit. I want to read this to you. What he said is recorded for us in John chapter 14, verse 16. Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. Now, I read from the Holman Christian Standard Version. And my version translates this word counselor. If you read this in other versions, it'll say, uh, your version might say helper, it might say comforter, or actually I think the best translation, the best English translation says advocate. It, but the Greek word that Jesus used here is the Greek word paraclete. And if that sounds familiar to you, it's because that's, I'm getting real technical here, I know, but that's the noun form of the verb parakleo. And what that word meant in the noun form, it described a, a legal counsel or basically a defense attorney. And when you consider what you need a defense attorney to do for you when you're in court, I think suddenly this, this parakaleo ministry of truth and love, a, a light comes on. Because when you're in court 
and you have a defense attorney there to defend you, on the one hand, that defense attorney is literally physically standing right next to you. They're literally by your side, but they're not just holding your hand. Because when you're standing before a judge waiting to hear a sentence that could, could decide the rest of your life, you need more than somebody to just hold your hand. You need somebody to fight for you and to plead for you and to intercede for you and to go to bat for you on your behalf. That's what this word that Jesus used to describe the Holy Spirit. That's what an advocate is. That's exactly what the, the, the disciples would have thought of when Jesus used that word. But notice that when Jesus describes the Holy Spirit, he said the Spirit would, would be the, the second or, or the other advocate. And so that raises the question, who's the first advocate? And the only other place in the New Testament that this same word, the noun form of this word is used outside Jesus' upper room discourse, the only other place you're going to find this in Scripture is in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, which says this. It says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And that word advocate is the, is the same word paraclete, the same exact word Jesus used to describe the Holy Spirit to his disciples. And here's what that means. Here's what this means. It means that Jesus is your advocate. It, it means that, that when you believe in him, Jesus is not only beside you, he's not only with you, he's not only walking with you, but he's standing in your place and he's fighting on your behalf, and he's interceding for you before the throne of God. And what John is writing to tell us in 1 John 2, 1, is that if you've put your trust in Jesus, what happens is when you sin, Jesus goes before the throne of God on your behalf, and he says, Father, I know that they've sinned. And I know that your law says the wages of sin is death. But I paid that penalty with my own life and my own death. And it would be unjust for you to demand two payments for the same crime. And so now your law, which once called for their condemnation, now calls for their acquittal because of their relationship with me and what I've done for them. That's what it means to have Jesus as your advocate. And that's why scripture can make the amazing promise that there is therefore now no condemnation and there never will be any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't know how you say that without smiling. That ain't never going to stop being good news. Amen? And, and, and so, so, so I think when you understand that, that, that you have Jesus as your advocate going to bat for you, now you can understand uh, how the Holy Spirit encourages you and why Jesus said the, the Holy Spirit is so vital to your life in, in, in the service of Jesus because basically the Holy Spirit's role, according to Jesus, as your second advocate, his primary role in your life is to remind you of your first advocate. So, so what the Spirit does is he enters into your life, and, and I'll just make this personal for you. What the Spirit does is he enters into your life, and he says, look at your first, look at Jesus. Look at your first advocate. Look at, look at all that Jesus has done for you. Look at how far his love drove him to bring you home, to bring you in to his family. And so in light of that, in light of what you have in him and who you are in him and what is objectively true about you right now because of your relationship with him according to God's word, in light of that, why are you so bothered by the, by the momentary light up and down affliction of this life that, that scripture said is a vapor? Why are you so moved by what other people think about you? 
Why are you so undone by a worldly loss of power or approval or comfort or control? You've got Jesus. And, and far more importantly, Jesus has you and he's never going to lose you. And so walk in all the freedom and all the power and all the comfort and all the joy and all the peace that the gospel affords you. That's the language of the second advocate, the Holy Spirit of God. I, I, um, I'm almost done here. I, I, I've been... All week, I've been looking forward to sharing this, this story with you. There was, um, there was an 18th century Welsh preacher. By the way, you could have all left by now, and I would have absolutely no idea. This is wild. Uh, there's an 18th century Welsh preacher who told the story of an experience he had as, as just a 15 or 16-year-old kid. It changed his life forever. He was in a home. Uh, so he, uh, him and his family were in a home around the deathbed of his Aunt Lizzie. And they knew that she had just mere moments before she stepped into eternity. And they thought that she was unconscious. And, and so they started to talk about her. And they started to talk about the life that she lived. And, and, and Aunt Lizzie had lived a, a miserable life by basically anybody's standard. She'd had two husbands die on her during her lifetime. She'd lived in poverty. She was getting ready to die in poverty. And throughout her life, she had ongoing battles with chronic physical ailments. And so talking about this woman and the life that she lived, they kept saying the words, poor Aunt Lizzie. But what none of them knew is that she was not unconscious and she could hear every word they said. And so she opened her eyes and she looked around the room at the people gathered around her. And she said, this is exactly what she said. I don't know how you would ever forget words like this. She said, who calls me poor? I am rich and I will stand before him bold as a lion. And with those words, she died. And her nephew, understandably, never, ever forgot those words, had a profound impact on his life. He grew up to become an instrumental preacher in a revival that swept across Wales in the 18th century because what he saw that night was a woman, his own aunt, as bold as a lion in the face of her own death, simply because and only because her second advocate was talking to her about her first advocate. And while everybody else was saying, poor Aunt Lizzie, because she had two husbands die on her and she didn't have any money and she'd struggled with sickness her whole life. While everybody else looked at her life and said, poor Aunt Lizzie, she knew better. And while so many people would have allowed those kinds of things to define them, that woman didn't because she knew that in Jesus, she had the one husband who would never die. She knew she had the only wealth you could never lose. And she knew the only sickness that could have really killed her, which was her sin, was dealt with by her Savior years ago. So there was nothing left to do but take a deep breath and face her own death as bold as a lion. When the Holy Spirit encourages you like that, when the second advocate tells you about your first advocate, then you can become an advocate for others. Then you can be an encourager that embodies both, both truth and love. And as far as I can tell from the book of Acts, that's what the church was always meant to be. It's just a group of people who have been saved by grace through faith in the name of Jesus, encouraging each other with the encouragement that we receive from the Holy Spirit so that we can be the people our Heavenly Father's called us to be and live the lives that he's called us to live. That right there is the secret of the church of Antioch. Now, I'm done here. In case it isn't abundantly obvious, the reason that I wanted to give this teaching on the day we launched small groups is because the ministry of encouragement is something that can only effectively take place in the context of personal, ongoing relationships, and that's exactly what our small groups are all about. That's why we make such a big deal out of them. Now, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that small groups 
have never been more important than they are right now. If I can just open up to you at the, at the end here, it has been really weird being a pastor of a church during this pandemic. I don't know that it'll ever be stranger. I know this is famous last words, but I don't know that it'll ever be more strange to pastor a church than it, than it is right now. In case in point, I'm staring at a pitch black field because we can't even meet indoors. And I've, I've talked to a lot of church leaders. I've read a lot of articles and there are surveys by the Pew Research Center and others where experts are saying that as many as one third of the people, 33% of the people who were connected to a church pre-COVID are going to simply fall away. And so I just want to end our time together this evening by saying, by pleading with you, please don't become a part of that statistic. For the sake of, of your marriage, for the sake of your family, for the sake of the people that God's placed in your life, and for the sake of the, of the person that you could be 5, 10, 20, 30 years from now, please don't disconnect. The church at Antioch, from what I see here, would have never been all that it was meant to be, apart from Barnabas's encouragement, and it's no different for you. You need people in your life to encourage you, and other people need you in their life to do the same thing for them. So whether you're joining me on this field or joining me online, I'm just asking you, please sign up for an existing group and make a commitment to be a part of it as best you can. And if you can't find one that fits you, then grab a box and form one of your own because of all the things that I'm uncertain of, what I'm sure of is this. The people who make it through this thing, however long this drags on, the people who make it through this thing and are stronger on the other side of it are the people who refuse to go it alone. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you. Um, Thank you for this experience. Thank you, thank you for this field. Thank you for the, the fact that, that we've had the option to do outdoor services when not a lot of local churches have had that. And thank you for all the people that have made the sacrifice to come on out and be a part of it these last few weeks and, and the people that will continue to be a part of it, God. And uh, over and over again, your son said it and, and the New Testament authors said it. It is so, your, your heart for us, it is so obvious, it's so clear is that we would be one. And it's relationships with other followers of Jesus that, that are one of the primary, if not the primary tool that you use to develop us into the people that you've called us to be. So God, let it be said of this church that we're a church that, that nobody falls through the cracks, that nobody slips away, that everybody's holding on to somebody, and that we get, this through th get through this thing together for your glory and for our joy. And it's in the name of Jesus we come before you with confidence and boldness. And God's people said, amen. Have a great night. Hope you find a group.